This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. So, all right. Sorry, my mind went off. So weird it, it might be handy for Fred or somebody that, like some of the trees that are out there are going to be larger. Like when you're building a Wafati, say Cooper Cabin, there's those two center posts and that massive beam going over top of them. And I'm, I'm going to guesstimate that beam is like a 36 inch diameter, uh, log. And normally you wouldn't use that size of a log, say in comparison, uh, Allerton Abbey, maybe it has 12 inch or there, maybe there's a couple 16 inch logs somewhere in there. But my thought was, is I'd probably be targeting after it's, after you pull, peel the bark, uh, maybe a 14 inch diameter beam and then 12 inch posts underneath that beam. So there's going to be trees larger than I would want to use for my own Wofati. Um, but maybe there's like those large trees out there and then there's two or three other trees nearby it that are 10 inch or 12 inch that are limiting its growth. And so, if certain trees are flagged as a leave these be because they're big enough now that we'll just let them continue to grow and they'll turn into great sawmill material. Um, but then pull all the trees that are within 15 feet of that, uh, and use that for Wafati material so that you can sort of thin out and have these larger trees then can start to, to fatten up as a result. What we've been doing is a type of forestry practice where, um, you know, you'll, you'll get to a bunch of trees and there'll be like seven trees. And it's like, <clears throat> these, these seven trees are all way too close to each other. And so three of them really have to come out. And so, um, first of all, whichever tree is the biggest, tallest, straightest, handsomest tree, that one stays. Uh, the trees that we're taking out are usually the trees that uh, uh, have a crotch, uh, are leaning weird, uh, you know, things of that nature. But, you know, part of it is, too, is like if everything's bunched up to the one tree that we're leaving behind, then those are the trees that are coming out, no matter how straight and handsome they might be. The thing is, is that in order for that one tree to do really well, it it needs to have less competition. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a pretty standard good forestry practice. Notice I'm using the word forestry instead of woodland care. This is a, you know, a pretty standard good forestry practice. Leave the tall Berthas, the tall handsome Berthas there and take out, take out other trees. Uh, I don't want to take out too many trees at once. Usually I don't want to take out more than a third. Um, and so, uh, kind of depends and stuff. Uh, but anyway, in time, yeah, those, those big Berthas are going to be, you know, doing a lot more for us. And they, and they will, uh, 
become even more, even taller and more handsome, so much faster with less competition around them. They're, they're just going to be super magnificent trees. Um, but I want to correct a couple things. I think in Allerton Abbey, I think the biggest tree might be, I'm going to, I'm going to guess 15 inches in diameter. Okay. Um, and in Cooper Cabin, yes, there is that one big fat log going through the middle of it. I'm going to guess that's 20 inches in diameter. It's, a, oh, it's okay. big. It's big, but not not quite as big as what you're thinking. Um, I also think that there's a lot of um, uh, joinery happening in there that it's kind of like, oh, man, how, how do we hit the undo button on that? So some of the joinery is being reworked in Cooper Cabin this year. We've already reworked some. Uh, and I think there's some more joinery to be re- reworked in there like that. It's like, I don't like the way that joinery was done in there. Um, <clears throat> okay. The, the thing is, is that, um, I mean, how big of a structure are you thinking of making? Um, probably something size similar to Allerton Abbey. I kind of think that, and we haven't, we have not done this ourselves yet. But I kind of think that when the day comes that you want to expand a Wafadi, I, I think it won't be too hard. I, I think you're just going to need to expose a side and then you can kind of yeah. make an attaching Wafadi onto that. The, the thing that's going to be a bummer is going to be, uh, you know, taking out that pretty wall that you, you made so lovely. And then, um, but you can reuse those logs. I, I was pondering doing, cause I'll, I'll probably use like eight foot spacing for posts. And so you could have two 16 by 16 squares, right? And each one would have a post in the middle. And then if you shifted one of those, so, Say if they're two separate things and they're touching on one 16 foot wall, you could shift one of them, um, north or south, say by eight feet. So there's a stagger, um, to them. And then in the future, if you wanted, you could add a third one of those and shift it back. So it's in line with the first one. So you end up with a three cells, as it were, going across and in the middle, because that one shifted back eight feet, you sort of have like this additional patio-ish space that's going to be outside that maybe it's like a covered um, porch area or, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so it wouldn't be quite so difficult as far as, like you said, if you're going to expand it, it, it would be easiest to add on to one of the narrow ends um, of it and just make it longer. So you saw as many windows, you know, facing out as possible. I, I kind of, I want to say a thing which I kind of mentioned in one thread in an obscure place a long time ago on Termes. And that is that if we were to build a brand new Wafadi from scratch, I would go with a much simpler design. I, I think that what I would do is like, I think that the, I think that it, uh, I would make the shed roof part, like on Allerton Abbey, I would make the shed roof part about half as gentle. No, wait, let me phrase that. I'm phrasing that wrong. Shallower? Ha- yeah, 
make it make it gentler. I want to make the shed roof side yeah. gentler, and and so it's it's rise over run would be half. And so you're referring to the more southerly side that faces the greenhouse, the peaked end. Let's let's leave out north and south. Sure. Let's just say there's there's two roofs on Alert's Abbey. There's a shed roof. And there's a gable roof. And the gable roof, like, looks toward the greenhouse. Yes. Great. Yes. The shed roof is just... So first, I would make the shed roof gentler. And I would make... I would eliminate the gable roof. And and you could either do another shed roof going out that way. That's very gentle. So the water would run back from that shed roof and meet between like halfway and then it would go out the sides. So that's a, that's a possibility. Or come up with something that's still a bit, if you want to do something that's gable roof-esque, I think what I would do is do a flat roof on the inside put the dirt down in a very gentle gable roof shape and then put another membrane over that. And so, and then the facade would have a bit of a gentle gable roof thing going on. So, um, but I, I kind of like the idea of shed roof meets shed roof and that the, the, the water meets in the middle and runs to the sides. I I think that is that is currently my preferred uh Wafati design. And and part of that has to do with having worked with these so much. The gable roof designs on the interior have been a little too interesting and it's led to problems. Um I don't want to do it again. And plus it, it I think it added a lot to the build time. Oakland, you get your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I understand what you were describing. So you're actually talking about the height of the roof over the door being taller than the height of the roof at the center of the building. Is that correct? Yes. Cool. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So it's that not a, fascinating. It's not a flat roof. Right. It is. It is a shed roof where, like, the back of two sheds meet. So there, it, it does tend to invite too much water to the middle. But see, then that's the, that's the next thing though, is that I can build a little, I could throw some dirt in the middle and thus it kind of adds a little spine from the middle of one shed roof to the middle of the other shed roof. And then I can throw another membrane over that. Right. So that way, if any water gets through the umbrella, it's going to go to the sides. It's not going to try to go towards the middle of the house. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, it's like working with the materials that we have rather than trying to massage conventional designs into this architecture. Um, all right. I'm... I. All, all I'm saying is I think that what I'm proposing, what I'm talking about here, is much simpler. 
and you can use uh, smaller logs, which is kind of part of what we're talking about. I mean, part right. of part of what Mark said is, is what he's alluding to is, is, and what Fred's worried about is we're running out of fat logs, and that we might be a little low on fat logs that are not like like I think what Fred's looking for is is like okay, we go to a spot. And yeah, there is a fat log there. There's a big old birth of tree right there that we can take. But it's not like there's birth of junior way too close to that tree. All the trees that are, that are near that, that are too close to that tree are much smaller. So by our standards, we don't have a tree we can go and we don't have, we don't have a good tree to go and, and throw under the sawmill, a fat tree to put under the sawmill. Because, like, if there's two giant Berthas right next to each other that are too close, clearly one of them has to go. If, otherwise, they'll both die. Okay. Now, I want to go on to a point that, Mark, you made in your in your list of stuff to talk about for this podcast, about building codes. And uh, you said, I'm going to quote this a little bit. I saw large bales of rice holes are sold which when open up are 90 cubic feet each, but that's pricey. Uh, drop ship on pallets and would probably be a hassle to use for this. Uh, ever had several of those massive round straw bales delivered, assuming that's the only local organic option. Any other option when it comes to the insulation layer? So what I call the duff layer. Um if, if you're going to do rice holes and they're going to be delivered, you kind of lose some of your eco points, but you're kind of losing some of your eco points if you go get straw as well. And that's another thing too is I kind of don't want, it's like even my straw at five bucks a bale, it's like, oh yeah, I don't want people just building everything out of straw, which we had to go get from three and a half hours away. I'd rather that people built with the materials that are already here. And, um, but, okay, um, I'm going to say if a person wanted to import rice holes, that would be fine. That would be a, a, actually a really good material in a lot of different ways. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd rather that they find something here. So I'll allow it, but, you know, I'll be kind of making uh, snotty faces over it. Um, and those massive straw bales, uh, I mean, I think that that's going to actually work out really. The massive straw bales will work fine. I mean, basically you're going to put them on a trailer and then you just got to find a way to get them off the trailer, which, you know, we have equipment that helps with that. Um, and, uh, so I think, I think that that would be fine. I, I would like to see you get back to the concept of wood duff if you're going to do it. Um, yeah, I think I think the pine needles uh, or the the pine straw we were talking about earlier would be the simplest option. You just have to go out and and rake up, you know, bundles of that and then bring it back. Uh, that honestly seems to be the simplest option. You know, it's it's time invested, uh, but if you're going to purchase straw bales or whatever, that's time invested to go get it. Um, so yeah, there'll be more time involved with the, the pine straw, but then it's free and it's obviously on the property. So, you know, the overall impact would be the lowest. Okay. I, I say wood duff 
I mean, so I I would say pine straw definitely qualifies as wood dust. But what about going out to the dances with pigs meadow with a yeah. scythe or something like that? I mean, the other thing is, is that the, the, the slip straw material, you could do it without the clay. The same stuff, just slapity slap it down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and you could do mountains of that. And yeah. that's going to be, um, equivalent to wood duff. Um, how about napweed? Got lots of that. Um, I'll bet there's other things growing here that you could, you know, hack out and um, add it to your wood duff pile there. And, uh, um, you know, that'll be good, too. I mean, what you don't want to do is to have a lot of green material in there. Because if you've got green material and it gets wet, it can spontaneously combust. Yeah, if it starts to compost too hotly, then it can uh, catch up. But then it also needs the oxygen for that um, for that fast composting to happen. So here in San Diego, um, we do not get very much rain at all, and particularly in the summer. And so each spring, I would go through and prune out, you know, let's call them weeds in the yard and put it into a pile. And I'm not actively doing anything with that pile, so I wouldn't call it a compost pile. And I'm looking at it here through the window, and I have this nice brown pile of weeds that are almost the exact same volume as they were when I put them in green. They just, they dried out and turned brown and they're not breaking down quickly, we'll say. So I can certainly see having a little staging area, right? Something that's covered in case it rains, it won't get wet, where you can scythe out grasses that are getting tall in the meadow or weeds, uh, you know, pine duff, all that kind of stuff, and that could be accumulated in a pile where it's kept dry and then used, you know, when you get to that point of, of wanting to cover it all up and, uh, just being able to take a, uh, a garden fork and toss it in there and, you know, put in six inches or a foot, uh, thick and then put your, your waterproof membrane on top of that and then soil your two feet of soil on top of that. I do think having the insulation layer will help when it comes to the the earthen mass around the wafati uh, just to protect it. Because in the wintertime, like you're talking about, it could take so many weeks to go through a foot of soil. But you're also dealing with that from the top. So when when that soil gets wet, then the the heat is immediately going to be drawn out of, you know, wet soil. Say it's... 35 degrees and it rains overnight, right? That, that top two feet of soil is going to be, you know, at most 40 degrees, um, by the next day, you know, that soaking wet, um, soil. So if you have just the waterproof membrane, well, now you've got say 35 to 40 degree temperature soil on top of it. And now it's going to start drawing the heat from uh, that soil, that dry soil underneath the membrane, it's going to start pulling heat out um, into the atmosphere from that layer. So in the wintertime, say every if you get a foot of soil every two weeks uh, as far as heat transfer, then 
unless you you have you know a hot spell during the winter time if it's consistently say 30 to 40 degrees out well then after two weeks of that, uh, you're going to have that top foot of soil underneath the membrane is also going to be getting down towards 40 degrees. You know, so you're going to start draw- pulling that, the heat from both directions in the wintertime. If you've got, say, a 65 or 70 degree mass, two feet inside your wall, and some of that heat starts getting pulled into the living space during the wintertime, you're also going to start pulling some of that heat into outer space, as it were. Um, where that waterproof membrane meets the outside world. So I'm, I'm thinking it'll be pretty key to have, you know, a nice thick layer of insulation underneath that, that waterproof membrane. So I'm all for doing everything on the property. Um, I had, I had totally forgot about just the pine needles that would be falling off the trees naturally, that there's just going to be layers and layers of that everywhere. Um, so that'll be, a big thing, you know, I've, I've come up with sort of a, uh, a schedule of things I want to do mm-hmm. when I come out there and, you know, like number one, cutting down the larger logs that I'll need and peeling them and getting them up off the ground so they can start to dry and then going and getting all the junk poles and building the fence around the, that piece of property so that the deer can't get to it. And then work on whatever additional earthworks, um, needs to be done as part of excavating where I want to put in the Wafati. There's going to be some excavation there and doing any other kind of, uh, excavation, say for the hugel culture and all that, um, like all at the same time, you know, get, get all the digging done so that the equipment can be in there, do all the digging, then get that equipment out of there so it's not you know, compacting the soil and there'll be a time then for accumulating all of that wood duff um, off to the side for that layer. So when it comes through, then like in the summertime, siding grass as it's growing, you could probably get two or three times go through the same area um, as that grass regrows, like say once a month or something, go back in and, and cut down another foot of grass. I don't know how quickly it grows out there, but um, you know, or pulling out knapweed, all that kind of stuff um, and just accumulating it. So I think it'll be, there'll be plenty of material without having to purchase it. Cause like those rice hulls, I think that that was it would have been like two thousand dollars for the the volume yeah. that I was looking at. Ah, yeah, you know, crazy expensive. Um, so yeah. and along same with the straw lines, bills. Along those lines, um, uh, this year uh, uh, we have like like Fred. I think I think it might have been a Fred thing. Maybe it was a Des thing. Maybe it was a Magdalene thing. But but somebody here uh, found a source that's not too terribly far away. Like, um, I'm going to guess like 20, 25 minutes away and, um, uh, where you can drive in with, you've seen our dump trailer, right? It's a five ton yeah. dump trailer. Mm-hmm. So we've got some sides that we made for it to kind of add like, I think like two and a half feet onto the sides. So it can go even higher. So they put those sides on it and then you take the dump trailer in there and, uh, they will, Fill it to heaping with kind of a, a, a barky stuff that comes from forest land. So it's, it's non, 
It doesn't, and it's, it's all living trees from, um, forest land, not urban. So I feel confident that it does not have any persistent herbicides in it. Because, mm-hmm. because most forest land, they feel like, uh, that stuff's just too damn expensive. You know, don't, don't screw with it. It's not worth it. Uh, plus, of course, you know, forest land, they've got like millions and millions of acres. They have figured out that their trees, which they profit from, are not grass. And so why spray, you know, tree poison on their trees, which is their profit thing? They're not going to do it. So it's, uh, it's, so I feel very confident that there are no persistent herbicides in these trees. And so it's kind of a barky, chippy thing, but they will fill our trailer to heaping for 20 bucks. Nice. The whole trailer. And, uh, uh, so we've been getting a couple loads of that for different projects. Uh, but it is wood duff. And, uh, uh, so, you know, if you're going to be thinking about this kind of thing, this is, you want to buy it and import it, you can do that. You can use this material, um, or all these other free materials that are all over the place. But, uh, I think we've gotten two loads of this, of this stuff for work at, um, at base camp, where we don't have a lot of organic matter at base camp. Yeah. As opposed to like going up and scraping it off the ground, uh, up at the lab and throwing it onto the same trailer and then bringing the trailer down to base camp. And it's like 20 bucks, you know. That saves you a lot of work. <laughs> you know, if you're getting a couple, couple cubic yards of material, um, yeah, that's a lot of shoveling if you have to fill the trailer yourself from the lab. So. Yeah, this is a this is a pretty big trailer. Uh, I think it's eight feet wide and seventeen feet long, um, and it, it dumps. It's a dump trailer, so it's like you know you get to where uh, where you want it, that that pile to be, and you hit the button, and it goes up and it dumps. Yeah, it's like ah, nice, that's easy. So, all right, moving on cool. to the next thing. Does anybody else have anything else to talk about about insulation on a Wafati? No. Okay, so used versus new windows, doors, building materials. Does Missoula or surrounding areas have any restore-type recycling centers? And so uh, Missoula does. Missoula has home resource, and they've got all this used stuff there that you can go and, and get. And it's like uh, – um, I think our peeps are there probably at least once a week, um, you know, shopping around, picking stuff out, pricing stuff, things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's there's a fair bit of stuff that we get from home resource. And so, yeah, they'll sell it to cool. you too, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, there's this. Um, Let's see, building materials should obviously not have petroleum products, but what about vinyl clad windows? Yeah, I, I would not want to buy new vinyl clad windows, but if there's used ones, so personally, I'd rather just buy pieces of glass and then make frames for that so that I'd have my own wood frame glass window versus vinyl clad. But yeah. this was more of a Ask the questions so in case somebody else had that question, they'd they'd have the answer. Yeah, but I don't I, mean, I don't see myself wanting to use vinyl for any of that. It just would look so out of place. I think 
I agree. Let's let's not use vinyl clad. Um, I don't think anybody's tried to bring vinyl clad here. And I mean, um, for the greenhouse, uh, that's double pane glass on the greenhouse um, that we bought brand new. Um, and uh, but I also know that for the solarium that uh, Des is using some glass that was donated by uh, Eric Raderson. And uh, uh, when he brought those big loads here of donated stuff, and then uh, Bo brought another load with all this glass. So we're going to be using that glass for it. And we're also using um, uh, that same glass for uh, Mud's new um, solar food dehydrator with rocket assist. So um, uh, anyway, it's kind of like, yeah, I kind of feel like, Used glass is pretty easy to come by. Okay. And, uh, but, but yeah, when you, when you want to get the stuff where it'll have a way of opening and closing, I mean, we've been, all the stuff we've been getting has had a metal frame. So no, I haven't seen anything that's like the, the vinyl stuff. All right. Uh, custom made, custom windows are made for the greenhouse. Is this a reasonable option? For affordable windows. The greenhouse ones are tempered glass because they're going to be basically like laying out, waiting for hail. Right? And so mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty heavy tempered glass. So it costs us a lot. Um, but if you're getting regular normal glass, you're going to find that it's a lot cheaper to get the glass that comes in standard shapes and sizes. Right. Yeah. And um, so um, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, it's it's you probably want to get the standard sizes. But you can also buy it used pretty easy, pretty cheap. Uh, glass can be ordered to make something custom, but, but a dual-pane window uh, made that way probably would have condensation issues. Okay, that's a really good point. Um if when you buy double pane glass, my understanding is you gotta buy it locally. Because if you don't buy it locally, the moment you go over a, a mountain pass, it'll crack because the air pressure will change so much. Um, because it's it's usually sealed and filled with a, some kind of gas so that there won't be any condensation. Yeah, argon or something like that. And I I did see um, the YouTube channel Mr. Chickadee released a video this last week where he had glass panes and with I mean he he's like an artisan when it comes to woodworking, um, but he made um, custom wood window frames and he made uh, essentially two casement windows that were um, sandwiched together. So one swings inwards and then the other one swings outwards. But so there's maybe an inch or two of dead air between these two windows. And so you get the, and he said it, I think was based off a Swedish window design. It's been used for quite a while. Um, so you get the insulative value of a double pane window, but there's no, it's just regular air. There's no argon gas in there. Um, and you can just buy cheap glass, you know, or get recycled glass to make 
the windows. And I think he used um, linseed oil and um, uh, lime, uh, powdered lime, for to make the caulking putty to caulk around those windows. Nice. Um, that he said that that worked well. So that. That I saw that after <laughs> writing up these questions, so that's probably the way that that I'd be going. Um, I I do want to sort of like have an attached greenhouse on the I'm just going to call it the front or the south facing side of the Wofadi, um, so that could be sort of like a a really really fancy double paned window that's so big you can walk through it um and having you know single pane glass on the exterior uh wall of the greenhouse and that would probably be sloped to the angle to match the winter solstice type of sun angle um so that's where i was thinking that you know a tempered glass or something that's sturdier because it's it is going to be sloped um so you could have you know, hail damage if it's just uh thinner glass. First, first let me talk you out of winter solstice angle. Okay. Because there's only going to be one of those per year. I tend to go with February 1 instead. Okay. Because, because that point is going to happen at least twice per year, once in November and once on one. Um, and then uh, when you get into, to, and, and then not only that, but February 1 is like, you know, right about where things are really, really damn cold. Um, and then the space between, uh, you know, November and February 1 when, you know, you're starting to get into the, the, the sun's riding a little lower than your optimal angle, then it's like it's not off that much. And so, um, and so you're still going to be getting a lot of that sun. Uh, not very much of it's going to be bounced away because there's this angle going on. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, there's the whole thing about like a lot of it kind of gets bounced away because the sun isn't like at perfect solar noon all day anyway. It, it moves across the sky. So you've already got this, this angly thing going on. Right. For the east to west axis. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's kind of like, uh, uh, so therefore I, I kind of feel like the angle for, um, about February one is about perfect, but that's just me. And I'd love to hear some possible variations on that and, and the, the reasoning for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I like the idea of seeing what Mr. Chickadee has done with those windows. I, I know that YouTube suggested that video to me like a few days ago, and I was in the middle of a bunch of other stuff, so I didn't look at it. Um, usually I like to watch his stuff. Uh, but there is – it does remind me of Mr. Chickadee does use a lot of blackening where he will burn yeah. things to get them to last. And uh, I put up my, my video recently about posts. And one of the things I said is, is that one of the things we don't do is we don't burn the ends of posts. Um, and, uh, a lot of people really believe in that. And I said, I do think it would add about 10%. And somebody commented on the video saying there's been a bunch of studies on that proving that it doesn't help at all. And if anything, it makes it worse. It's like, and I, I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and I don't know. Whether the guy posting on my 
uh, my YouTube video is right or Mr. Chickadee is right or who's right, but Oops is off. Yeah, I know he does a combination where he'll, he'll char and then he'll also, um, paint on some kind of preservative and usually it's a combination of like linseed oil, uh, pine tar, maybe something else, uh, in combination to help. So maybe just that painting on that kind of a natural preservative would be plenty and of course, I I prefer the method of don't have the the logs sitting directly against the soil in the hole. You know, you're gonna dig a hole, dig it wide enough, put a couple inches of gravel around it, and you know, keep it keep it away from that dirt as much as possible. So that's I I don't think I'd bother with the charring. One, the logs are gonna be so large. You know, these aren't gonna be four inch diameter uh, sticks that that I would char and. There's so much of it to char. I'd be the person to say, well, uh, my 12 foot pole is now, uh, 10 and a half feet long and, uh, the rest broke off because I <laughs> waited too long or couldn't get it out of the fire. So, uh, I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible. I think there's a lot to be said for something that's a bit more of like an envelope house. Um, and that what you're going to do is like on the south, like if you're, gonna, if your greenhouse can be, or if you're Wafati, can be angled to face south so that the, the big wall is facing south. And you kind of set up something that's a bit of a greenhouse there. Um, and then, so then you've got the, the greenhouse maybe protruding an additional foot, foot and a mm-hmm. half out. And then you've got your five foot eave until you get to your interior wall. You kind of have this little bit of an enclosed porch right there. And it's like, even if it's just single-pane glass and it's a little drafty, if the temperature outside is zero, I kind of wonder, and if the temperature inside is 72, I kind of wonder what the temperature in between would be. And uh, I suspect it's going to be something on the order of like 30 or 40. Yeah, it really depends on on how sunny it is because it's a big difference between having a heavily overcast winter day and a clear and sunny winter day. You know, it could be the same temperature, but you're getting a lot less solar gain in that little space. True. Um, True. But yeah, I would I think it would be a lot warmer, and you get a little bit of an airlock. So when you're opening that front door, you're not particularly if it's windy, you don't want to blow in cold outside air and um which when you have thermal mass it's not as big of a deal um as when you don't but um you know it's a comfort level thing too but yeah i don't know how much i would actually be growing in there i i did have the idea of trying like well let's see if i can get you know something that's needs a higher usda you know level to grow you know if it's zone five ish there then maybe i can grow something that's zone seven or eight ish um inside that protected space so we'll we'll see how it goes all right so now um in the next bit you're talking about an attached greenhouse so you're talking about on the uphill side kind of like what i just described yeah yeah this is this would be the south the south facing wall having this this enclosed space, um, whether you call it a greenhouse or maybe you call it like a three season patio porch 
space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So then you say, speaking of the greenhouse, it seems an attached greenhouse that can be kept warmer through winter. Now, have I ever talked about the, the beehive heated house? Yes. On this podcast? Okay, cool, cool. I just kind of think that in your greenhouse, wouldn't that be a cool place to mm-hmm. put uh, a, a beehive or two? You know, um, and yeah, but totally sealed and it's open. Uh, the, the way that they get in and out goes through the wall. So it's not like they're getting in and out inside your Right. Um, yeah. Right. The, the the honeybees would all be have access. They they'd all be outside or they'd be in their hive, which has no access to the interior of the greenhouse. But then um being in that space would probably uh help them quite a lot, while yeah. at the same time any excess heat from that would help to also kind of heat that space. That mm-hmm. would just be kind of cool. All right. Um Let's see. Uh, so in this something. question, it's, a, it's about having uh, a gray water system that then is fed through this space um, so that you can have the, the water filtering, um, you know, biofilter plants growing in a planter bed or raised bed. Um, because what I'm planning to build would probably be a, technically it's not a wafati because it would be below grade by a couple of feet. Um, because the spot I'm looking at, it's doesn't have a very, um, steep slope. So I would be digging down and the grade level would be on all four sides would probably be two or three feet higher than the interior floor. So this patio area would also be level with the interior floor, which means that you could, you're, planter beds that are on grade would actually be like waist high when you're in there. So the idea is that you'd have um, your, your gray water coming out from the sink and going through some planter beds and then leaving that greenhouse and hitting like a deep mulch basin somewhere where you could have willow or cottonwood or something that, that can use that water. Um, so that's where I was asking about in this uh, paragraph here. So right now uh, we're about to engage the big test for the year for um, <coughs> uh, for the greenhouse. The greenhouse the greenhouse is all built. The um, the tubs are inside. They're ready to receive the gray water, uh, things of that nature. And we got to start sending gray water to those tubs. Um. It's, it's a, it's not a living space, right? It's this whole other, uh, uh, building. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder, I'm curious about, like, might there be any weird gray water odois? And so, and when there's an odor, I'm kind of thinking like, does that odor ferment into something that might not be healthy? And so it's like, you know, do we need to be thinking about, you know, ventilation when we do this? This is an experiment. But I gotta, I am curious about a bunch of different elements to it, including like, you know, is there going to be some sort of off-gassing of organics from this system? 
or will the air just smell perfectly fresh and clean and be fine and lovely and things of that nature. So um, I, it probably would be good. We've got some really good uh, uh, air quality testing equipment, and so maybe we should be setting that up at some point. I'm just thinking, all I'm doing is I'm saying, like, you know, I think go ahead and move ahead with your plans because you're not going to actually start building until next summer. But by then we'll have more data from the greenhouse at Alberton Abbey and we'll, you know, be able to know whether or not this is a good idea to, to do. Yeah. Because you're going to be having human beings in there 15 times more often than there will be human beings in the greenhouse at Alberton Abbey. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm just, just, I'm just sharing that thought, you know, b- before you leap there. Um, uh, let's see. Another thing is, is that, um, I did, I did find out an interesting thing about gray water, which went into the skip stuff about gray water. And that is that a willow tree's roots are active all winter. They're just not as active as they are through the summer. So um, that would mean that if you had a big-ass willow tree, that you could be you, – you could have a mulch pit out there. And if your willow tree is into the mulch pit with its roots, that it will continue to function through the winter. Ta-da! Okay. Great. Um, now, uh, I think, now we've got a few paragraphs to go, and I'm thinking I'm, I'm running out of time for today, uh, but, you know, and we could, we could circle back next week, no problem. Um, seems like I've got like, a a bunch of stuff I kind of want to cover in our, uh, in a, uh, a permaculture smackdown podcast coming soon. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, we could, we could pick up where we left off with this next week, unless you think that what's left here in your list is something we can whip through pretty quick. Um, I, I would say we could probably go through it quickly, um, or we could wait either way is fine with me. Um, right, next week we'll, we'll be out because of the event, but, um, that's true. Maybe and the week after that as well. So both of you, both of you will be here next week. I will be. Yeah. So, um, uh, wow, this is it's 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 going to be a nice crowd. Uh, a lot of a lot of familiar names coming back. Um, uh, it'll be a good time. And we had a vid- videographer who canceled, and then we have a new videographer stepping up. And it's nice. like, uh, uh, I'm hoping that it'll be videoed, but, um, and then maybe we could like, uh, do a, uh, a movie from it kind of a thing. That'd be cool. That would be super cool. And it's like, so I'm, I'm hopeful, but, uh, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you, you roll the dice and you see what happens. All right. Let me, let me try and see if I could do one more of these lines, uh, and see how we're doing. See how fast it goes. What are the plans for the new well and any cistern water storage? 
Uh, will there be any water lines or distribution points? So, um, there's, uh, right now, uh, the plumbing for the cistern is going from the cistern, uh, a bit south and, um, and then along Pascal Road until it gets to Pearl Road and then it heads north. And then there's a, a T at Allerton Abbey. Then it continues on heading north until it hits Cooper Cabin. And so, um, is the plot that you're considering along that line at all? I don't think so. Uh, I'm, the plot I'm looking at is along Pascal Road, but I think it's north of where the well is and where I think the, the cistern currently is. It sounds like that that line's going sort of southwest along Pascal Road, right? And then, then it's turning north. So I think it's going the other direction from where so, I'm looking at. So I'm trying to think of a way to describe this. Um, I mean, it's sort of like a an oval loop, if you, as far as the roads are concerned. There, right? I mean, then, there's there's a loop that people have called Ant Village Loop, which yeah. Allerton Abbey is kind of in the middle of, mm-hmm. and the teepees in there somewhere too. But um, and that's Pascal Road, and then Pearl Road, and McDaniel Road, which you know. We've just named so we know our way around. I mean, it's not formal right. in any way, shape, or form. It's very informal. But um, let's just say it doesn't it doesn't touch. Uh, well, it crosses McDaniel Road, but it doesn't follow McDaniel. And so I don't know if that helps. But I I I can say that the cistern runs. Uh, the the line runs from the cistern it runs south a little ways on Pascal Road, and then Pascal Road takes a hard right. Mm-hmm. And then it um, uh, goes west on Pascal Road until it hits Pearl Road. And then you hang a right, which is then going north yep. towards Cooper Cabin. Okay. But you stop by Alex Nabby on the way. Okay. Yeah, I think that if if you are looking at the Ant Village Loop, um, that the spot I'm looking at is somewhere around three or four o'clock on that very lopsided clock face, uh, while the well and the cistern and all that are more like at the five to six o'clock um, part of it, and then it's going clockwise up and around. So I'm not on the, the existing line, but maybe that's something that I can look at adding in later. That's a possibility. Okay. Um, um, another well is a possibility. There's lots of possibilities. Okay. So, okay. And it's possible too, that we could, you know, figure out a way to get you water with permaculture techniques and without this conventional wells. True. Um, all right. What are the plans for the new well? Water storage. Uh, will there be water lines or distribution channels? Uh, yeah, and I think that's already that's being documented on permies, so um, that's that's being put in. Could a person install a water tank of say 350 gallons? And you know what? With all this stuff about cisterns, I I do have one idea. So we have here we've got sand and clay. And of course, um, there are, uh, bricks available that are made from clay. They're just clay bricks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I have this idea. 
Um, what if, uh, you were to make, um, and it doesn't be not really you exactly, but you made a pit that's for a cistern. And so you put clay in the bottom. And then on top of that, you put sand. And then on top of that, you put a layer of bricks that are mortared with clay and sand. And then you start building a, a circular brick container where um, behind the bricks are sand and clay. So the clay is going to be very sealed and, and watertight. And then you just build it up in such a way that behind the bricks you're putting in some clay against the dirt and some sand against your bricks. Mm-hmm. And you just buildy, 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 buildy that up all the way up. So now you've got like this, this circular arch of bricks holding back all of the, um, sand, clay and dirt. And, uh, and it's basically a cistern on the inside, zero cement. All Clay and sand. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's that's what I'm trying to describe. Yeah, as if it doesn't have any kind of uh, frost heave issues, um, because on the the inside, if that's full of water, then that thermal mass is unlikely to freeze unless you just had a really really long spell. Um, but then I would think you'd you'd also want to somehow prevent the soil that's just outside of that area from getting wet um, through rain or snow because then if that freezes then you would have that frost heave from outside pushing in on it and maybe it would resist that because of the shape and having water in it um, holding it back Um, I'm just thinking that if the, the soil freezes and you get that ice um, you know, a foot down that that's just going to push and that it, it would break your seal. All true. Uh, All unless true. you had maybe a liner or some sort in there to protect it. All true. And there's, and there's ways. Okay. Um, uh, otherwise, perhaps a smaller tank and say a truck bed that you'll fill around and drive it to the house. Oh, that, that sounds like not very sustainable. I think what would be better is like if there's a, you know, um, uh, hydrant somewhere like near the road. I mean, yeah. At the very worst, you go down and fill up a couple of jugs and take them up, and maybe you have to fetch water like that every until you can put your own water system. And one of the and one possibility might be to um, have a bit of a cistern that's low. Uh, at the, at the road, and then you pump out of that cistern. That's a possibility. Mm-hmm. So, uh, alright. Alright, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it good right there. Okay. And we'll finish the rest of this, which is just these last two bits, uh, uh, in a few weeks when we're all back home again. And, uh, uh, we're not in the middle of this mega event. Um, and, uh, does that sound alright to pick up Sounds where we good. left off? Okay. Sounds great. If you like this sort of thing, 
come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about natural building, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.